This week I came across an article and described what the author called the mother's paradox. Uh, mothers, see if you can relate to any of these truths. Uh, motherhood is a complete sacrifice of alone time, but it can be incredibly lonely at the same time. In motherhood, the days are long, but the years are short. Now, motherhood is hilarious, but at the same time, it can also be heartbreaking. Motherhood is perfectly beautiful and yet incredibly messy. One writer quipped this. He said, uh, speak of the messiness of motherhood. He said, when you've got little kids, he said, trying to keep your house clean is like brushing your teeth while eating Oreos. And every mom of young kids said, amen, right? But the paradoxical truths of motherhood, those contrasting truths, uh, are not confined to the realm of motherhood. As a matter of fact, when you study the scriptures, what you're going to find in the Bible is in some incredible paradoxical truths in the Word of God. For instance, in Christ, uh, the Bible says we're victorious, but we're also still fighting the good faith uh, in our lives. Uh, we're already saved, but we're not yet experiencing the fullness of our salvation that is to come. Jesus is our conquering king, uh, yet at the same time, he was crucified as a criminal. And last week in 2 Corinthians 11, we discovered another important paradox that we just sang about uh, in that song, Cornerstone, is that our weakness unlocks God's divine power. When we're weak, we're actually strong is a paradoxical truth of the Christian life. And so because that is true, uh, we're actually called not to boast in our strengths, but to boast in our uh, weaknesses. And so we want to look at part two of that thought today that we began last week. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, we've said this before, but uh, there's a small chance you may not memorize everything that I say, right? Uh, but you may not realize this, that in the original autographs of the Scriptures, uh, there were no chapter breaks. Those chapter breaks were added uh, much later. And so, uh, most scholars would agree that the thought that, that in our weakness we're made strong begins at the beginning of chapter 11, and that thought goes all the way down through chapter 12, verse 10. So even though there's a chapter break in your Bibles that was added later, the thought is one continuous thought from the beginning of chapter 11 all the way down to chapter 12, verse 10. And uh, for the past few chapters, Paul had been uh, defending his ministry against these false teachers who were known as uh, super apostles. And so they tried to discredit Paul's ministry uh, by discrediting his character. They tried to discredit uh, his gifts and his competencies, and they're boasting in their uh, achievements. And Paul says, hey, you're trying to make me feel less than. Uh, he said, that's true. Uh, he says at one point, I, I was not an eloquent communicator. In other words, he said, hey, I I'm not a great preacher, uh, we learned from a, a few weeks ago, historically, uh, he was subpar as a communicator. He was sub, sub, subpar in good looks, all right? And so Paul says, hey, you're right. If you're going to talk about my weakness, that's 100% true. And so basically what Paul's saying here is I'm actually weaker than you think I am. And you know what else? I'm glad I'm weak because it's actually that in my weakness that then I am made strong. And let me just say this this morning on the front end. If some of you would get a hold of that truth, that it's in your weaknesses that you're made strong, it would actually uh, be the answer to insecurities, and it would reorient how we view our inadequacies. And so these are important, life-changing truths that we're going to encounter uh, here today. All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's pick up the thought uh, from last week in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. He says, I must go on boasting, 
Though there is nothing to be gained by it, uh, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Uh, Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, just in case you're wondering, right? And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We often talk about the upside-down logic of the kingdom, and if there's ever a message that is countercultural to what we're living through, it's this one. We live in a culture that through social media, people are leveraging that to only maximize and advertise and market their strengths and their accomplishments and their achievements. And what he says, hey, when you understand the gospel, actually it should lead you to the exact opposite because you finally understand and fully understand that it's in your weaknesses. There is the place where your strength in Christ actually shines through. Now, when I think of the Apostle Paul, uh, here's some thoughts I think of. Number one, this may in fact be the greatest Christian that's ever walked the planet, right? I mean, just incredible. His insight, his wisdom, his perseverance for the Lord, the people he won to Christ, the impact he's had on the kingdom, all these things. But the other thing I also think is this, I would not want to be that guy, am I right? I would not want to go through all those. When you chronicle his life, I mean, it was the highest of highs. He encounters Jesus there on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. I mean, just this incredible uh, blinding vision of encounter the resurrected Christ. But then he had the lowest of lows. We read off that laundry list last week of all the things he had persevered through and so how how in the world does he endure all of that and so the only thing we can conclude in studying the life of Paul is this is that it was because he had the tangible presence and power of God on his life and those difficult places in his journey those became bearable because he saw them not just some uh, affliction for no reason, or why is this happening to me, or why, why now, those kind of things, but instead, he saw them as opportunities to experience God's power in his life through his weakness. And I'm guessing there are some people here today who need to experience that same reality Because you've been walking through a season of affliction or suffering and there's a weakness in your life and you're almost running out of 
hope. And so today, I want us to look at two truths from this text on how to really lean in, actually put legs under this concept of strength through weakness, all right? So how, how does that work? What do you have to do? What does it actually look like? So we're going to look at today, all right? So two things. Number one, you must guard your heart against spiritual arrogance. If you remember last week, Paul said, hey, I don't want to brag, but I'm going to. Because if these guys are talking about all their external accomplishments, then, then I guess I'll, I'll list mine out here. So if you want to go there, I'll go there. I'll play that game. Matter of fact, when we, uh, Paul said an interesting phrase last week. He said, of the servants of Christ, I'm the best one. <laughs> How credible is that? Paul says, I can do all those things. I can boast about all my spiritual lineage, who I studied under, all the things I was zealous for the law. I could boast about all the sufferings uh, that I would do. And he said, if you want to compare those things, these false teachers who are gaining influence in this Corinthian church, he said, there will be no comparison. But Paul says, to do that would to be a fool. It would be to be ignorant. That word fool there in the original language, it also means to be ignorant. And what he's saying is to engage in that would be ignorant of the reality that it's not in all these strengths that I experience Christ's power. It's in my weaknesses that I will do that. So he begins to list out. He says, hey, you want to talk about your background? Here's mine. You want to talk about all the things, the hardships you've suffered for serving God? Here's a list uh, that I'm going to go through because this is one continuous thought from the beginning of chapter 11, he actually lists the third thing. He says, hey, if we're going to brag, like if we're going to compare resumes here, he said, here's a third thing that I, in fact, could uh, brag about. And so uh, Paul had to be careful about this last one, about this uh, spiritual uh, arrogance. Let me just say this. This one is more dangerous than the first two. Nobody wants to be around, nobody's deceived, nobody's influenced by a person who openly brags about their outward accomplishments, who brags about all their degrees or all the training they've went through or all the hardships, all the suffering, how tough they are, how much they're willing to endure. We're, we're repelled from that person, right? We're not attracted to that at all. But when it comes to spiritual experiences and spiritual resumes, uh, that is both more subtle and it's more accepted in Christian circles. And so Paul says, hey, not only do I have this last name and all this training, not only do I have all these experiences where I've suffered physically, but if you want to keep comparing resumes, let me just tell you about my uh, spiritual experiences. And the reality is uh, there's always a market for spiritual experiences. Do you realize that? There's always a market for spiritual experiences. High spiritual experiences will always attract a crowd. If you don't believe me, this is a true story. There's a church right now uh, in California that drops gold-colored particles from the ceiling. And they invite people to breathe those in, those gold particles in, as an opportunity for God to manifest himself in the service. Listen, Google it. You'll find it, all right? And the desire for the overtop experiences, that's what drives so many of the crooked televangelists. Yet you ever wonder, like, when these people get exposed for their lifestyle and their, you know, their claims that are false and all those things, they, they could just take a little break and go right out and fire that thing up again, and people flock to that, even after they've been exposed as a fraud. Why is that? Because there's always a market for the sensational spiritual. There's never a market for the routine, ordinary spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. 
But you find something exciting. You find something sensational that makes you feel a certain way. There will always be a market for that. And so Paul said, hey, if you want to talk about spiritual experiences, I, I could brag about that too. And he absolutely had an incredible sensational experience that could have been a source of pride for him. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Uh, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, and then he repeats himself, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Uh, God knows. Now, Paul's so humble here that he's actually describing this experience uh, using third-person language. Now, I'm just going to be honest. When I talk to someone and they talk about themselves in the third person, here's what I automatically know. Weirdo. Amen? And so why is Paul doing that? He's actually, he's just, he wants to deflect any attention away from himself and this incredible spiritual experience uh, that he's had. And so when he says, hey, I know a guy, what we learn from, if you study the text is this, it's Paul, right? It doesn't matter what, what uh, realm of life you're looking, you want someone to fix a car, fix your house, or someone to mow your grass, or something like that. Everybody says, hey, I know a guy, right? I just told someone that this morning, as a matter of fact. And so when Paul says, hey, I know a guy who had this incredible experience, he was caught up into the third heaven, he saw revelations, he saw visions, some things you can't even utter, uh, he's not talking in third person because he's a weirdo, he's actually just saying, hey, I don't want to take any credit for even the spiritual experiences that God has allowed me to have. He says, I know a guy, and it's me. That's what Paul's saying. But he's so humble about it, he doesn't even want to take credit for it if he could. Now, when we say that, let me just pause here. When the Bible talks about uh, the third heaven, uh, let me explain to you what that means, all right? So pay attention because I'm going to learn you something, okay? So when the Bible talks about heaven, it could be one of three meanings. Number one, uh, the first heaven uh, is the air around us where you see the birds and the sky and all those things. So that's the first heaven. When the Bible talks about the second heaven, uh, that would be the place where once you think of the stars and the planets exist, so the galaxies but when the Bible talks about the third heaven, that's the place where God dwells. And so Paul says, hey, I, I don't know if this is an out-of-body experience. I, I don't know if this is a, I don't exactly totally know what happened. But that third heaven, that place that's the dwelling place of God, Paul says, hey, I actually went there. He's not even sure how we got there. He said, I don't know if I was in the body, out of the body. I don't know. But I went to that place that verse 3 calls paradise. And I heard things, uh, what does he say there in verse 3? He says, I heard things that cannot be uttered. Now, here's the Cunningham paraphrase. It would blow your mind is what he's saying. Now, don't gloss over this fact. Paul has this incredible experience, he doesn't even know how it happened, where he literally went to the place where God dwells, the third heaven, and he saw things that, that couldn't even be uttered. You, you couldn't even imagine what he saw. How incredible is that? I mean, if you're going to brag on anything, brag on that, right? And think about this. He sat on that story for 14 years. I got to be honest. If that's me and we're hanging out together, and I got that story in my back pocket, I'm going to drop it every now and then. Amen? 
If you're bragging like, oh, last, last week we, we went to the lake, last summer we had this incredible lake, I'm gonna say, hey, that's nice. Uh, a few years ago, I went to heaven. <laughs> Pow, right? But Paul says, hey, I, this did happen. And I'm not even going to tell you it's me. I know a guy. It's actually me, right? And it actually happened. No, no one's even heard this. He said it actually happened uh, 14 years ago. But he's so humble about it, he doesn't even want to speak or brag about his spiritual accomplishments. Now, why doesn't Paul share this incredible story? Is it because he wants to diminish or hide how great God is and the great things God has done in his life? I mean, it doesn't even make sense that you would, you would not share that, right? You would think that, hey, God can use this and, and you know, uh, as a platform to, to share the gospel. So, so why does he hide this story? For 14 years, he's sitting on this story. You don't have to wonder why. The answer is where the answer always is. It's in the text. Look at verse 6 in chapter 12, verse 6. What's he say? Though if I should wish to boast, uh, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. So in other words, it, it actually happened, okay, but here it is. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. You see what he's saying? He said, the reason I've not shared this is because I'm worried that somehow you would become enamored with me and all that I've experienced and all that I've accomplished and you would see me as someone strong but what I want you to understand it's my weaknesses that Christ has made strong through me and it's these experiences that the glory of God is unlocked through and in my life now can you imagine if someone had that experience today they wouldn't sit on that for 14. Matter of fact, you don't have to actually wonder what would happen if someone had that experience today. In 2010, a book came out called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A True Story. And the book purported to tell the story of Alex Malarkey's experiences in heaven after a tragic accident in 2004 that left him a quadriplegic. That book was a New York Times bestseller. It sold over one million copies. It spawned an audio CD, remember those, a DVD, documentary, a TV movie deal. But Malarkey, who depends solely on social security payments to get by despite over all million copies being sold, lives on Social Security, has never seen a dime of that revenue. His late father, Kevin Malarkey, is credited as a co-author along with Alex, although Kevin held the sole copyrights. Alex admitted in writing the story was made up and he never went to heaven since publication. Alex Malarkey and his mother Beth have disavowed the book, which by the way, is there a better last name if you're going to tell a lie than Malarkey? Like someone should have been at Zondervan, remember Zondervan, remember Family Christian Store, remember that? And seen that book and said, hey, no way that's true, that dude's name is Malarkey, right? But he said this, in 2011, it was one of the most deceptive books ever, and wrote an extensive repudiation in an open letter to Christian bookstores in 2015, describing his near-death experience as a fabrication, and as a result, Tyndall House removed the book from 
print, and many Christian stories removed it from their bookshelves, but many did not because here's what they said. While it may not be true, it sells like crazy. Now contrast that with the Apostle Paul, who really did go to heaven. His last name is not Malarkey, right? And he sits on a story for 14 years, and, and when he goes to retell it, he says, hey, I, I know a guy. He had this experience. I didn't even use his own uh, name. And so what Paul is modeling here is he said, hey, listen, what, you can brag about all your training and your credentials and your resume. Don't do that. It's only a fool does that. You can brag about how tough you are and how much you've suffered for Jesus in chapter 11. Don't do that. Only a fool does that. He says, you can even brag about all your spiritual experiences, all the things the Lord has done in you and through you. He says, but only a fool would do that because they think that somehow it's in those accomplishments that strength is found when he said just the exact opposite is true. And so the temptation, this modeling, is not to give in to be a one-upper from Jesus. But I know one-uppers, it doesn't matter what story you tell, they've got a better one, a bigger one, right? I told a guy one time, I'm not proud of this, but confession's good for the soul, I said, one morning, I was coming home, and I stopped at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I ordered 10 White Castles. Bad ending. I just want to write that, write that down, all right? He said, dude, that's nothing. I can get 20 by myself. I'm like, of course you can, right? Just that person that always just, you know, whatever it is, at least you can do that spiritually. Make sure everybody knows how much time you spend in prayer and in the Word, Make sure everybody knows how great of a mission trip experience they had. They said, oh, that's great. Let me tell you about the one I went on. It's even crazier. Make sure everyone knows how skilled and knowledgeable you are in the Bible as evidenced by the fact that they feel the constant need to correct your theology or everyone else's in the room. Do you love being in the room with that person? To remind people all the time how long they've been serving, how much they give, how they've you know, served in the past, all those kind of things. And so here's what Paul's saying. Paul said, hey, you can do that. You can, you can play the part of a fool, but it's actually in all your weaknesses and adequacies. That's when you're strong. It's actually in all those, not your accomplishments, but in your failures that Christ gets the glory for any spiritual progress in your life. So what Paul's saying, hey, just so we're clear, I had this incredible experience I went to the dwelling place of God, but there's room for only one hero in the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. And in this spiritual pride about all the Lord has done in our lives, which it's, not, it's solely because of his grace, when we take credit for it, guess what we forfeit? His divine power working in us through this. When we get the glory, we forfeit divine power. So, just so we're clear for Moving on, if you went to heaven on vacation last year, I don't want to hear about it after the church, all right? So not only do we should guard our hearts against spiritual arrogance, because even bragging about the spiritual things can forfeit God's divine power and steal God's glory, but secondly, we also in the text have to guard our hearts against situational sulking. You ever notice that when you throw a pity party, nobody comes but you? Nobody shows up. And one of the common themes of those pity parties are the constant retelling of our afflictions and suffering for anybody who would ask or even be polite, right? Hey, how are you doing? Well, I'd be a lot better if I, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the case is. Now, I'm not minimizing anyone's suffering, but sometimes I think we need to rethink 
how we normally think about our afflictions. Here's why, because what we're going to see in the text is this. Because there are times when God allows pain into our lives, whether in the outer man or the inner man, where God allows pain into our lives to draw us close to him and grow our dependence on him and to protect us from sin. Many of us know, have testimonies of someone who may have gone through an incredible physical trial, and on the other side of that trial, even in the midst of that trial, they would say, hey, I grew so so much spiritually as a result of this. Uh, If you follow uh, pastor and author Tim Keller, uh, he's been walking now for for a long time with pancreatic cancer, and uh, did really well for a while, and he's doing bad again, and so uh, fasting, what he said in a recent interview, here's what he said. He said, uh, while this has been a difficult and at times hopeless journey, he said, I would not trade this diagnosis for the world because of what it's done to my prayer life. Like, I just, I read that and I'm like, you're not even saved, Brad, right? Like, when you see that? And so sometimes God allows those things into our lives to cause us to depend on Him on greater levels. And so, in other words, those ailments, those afflictions, those sufferings, we see them as something to complain. We see them, uh, sometimes we can be sulking. Why is this happening to me? Why is it going on this long? Why has God not put a stop to this? Why now? I don't deserve this fill in the blank, all those things. And maybe what we should do is say, hey, whatever God's allowed to happen, whatever God causes to happen, it may be not something to sulk about. It may be God moving me closer to Him and dependence on Him so that I don't sin. And so Paul talks about this incredible spiritual high. I went up into the third heaven. But then right on the heels of that, he talks about uh, this incredible low, this battle in the flesh. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, so, to keep me from being conceited, to, to guard me from pride, all right? Listen to what he says. To keep me from being conceited because the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So in other words, yes, I saw the third heaven, but to guard my heart from pride that would come with that experience, what's he say? A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? Why would God do that? You don't have to wonder why. What's he say? To keep me from being conceited. Says that in the beginning, says that in the end, and then he says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate about what this thorn in the flesh was. A lot of discussion about that, what he talks about in verse 7. But let's not glance over the fact that how he describes it, he says, it was given to me. So if you're listening, say amen. Sometimes God passively allows things to happen into your life. But that's not the language he uses here. He says, uh, God gave this to me. It wasn't God allowed it to happen. He says, God actually caused it to happen. God gave me this thorn in the flesh. And so here's a little side note. God will do whatever it requires, whatever it is, to produce spiritual growth in us, even things that cause great discomfort. But we also have to ask, why was it given to him? So we know that God didn't allow it. God actually gave it to him intentionally. But also, the other question that comes up is, why was it given? Well, again, where's the answer? It's in verse 7. Why did God give him the thorn in the flesh? 
Beginning of verse 7, to keep me from being conceited. The end of verse 7, to keep me from being conceited. And so Paul says, hey, here's my resume, chapter 11. Here's how tough I've been for Jesus, chapter 11. Here's a little story. I know a guy. It's me. I went up to heaven, chapter 12. But in order to keep me from getting prideful about any of those things, God said, I'm going to give you this thorn in the flesh so that I can protect your heart from pride. Here's another question. What exactly is that thorn in the flesh? Some say it was a type of physical ailment. In the Bible, Paul mentions having an eye condition where scales were over his eyes when he was blinded by the revelation of Jesus there in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. So some people say this, uh, he had poor eyesight. Some people say it was, uh, he might have contracted a common ailment of the day because he was always traveling around, interacting with sick people, so something like malaria that would have plagued him all of his life. Some argue that Paul had a speech impediment. Remember the super apostles, they're criticizing his speech, he's not eloquent with speech. Paul openly says, hey, I'm not a good preacher, so some people say that thorn in the flesh is God would not fix him from that. Uh, one notable commentator thinks this, he says, I think the thorn in the flesh is actually a demon. He said the word messenger in our English Bibles is used in the Greek many times in Scripture, and it always refers to a person, not a physical ailment. It's the Greek word angelos, which refers to angels, and angels uh, or demons are fallen angels. And so, what he says, and, and I just tell you this, this is probably where I land. If you disagree, free to be wrong, all right? He says, hey, this is probably a thorn of flesh was a demonic attack against Paul and against the church at Corinth, and that demonic attack could have afflicted Paul in both the outer man and in the inner man. But let's not get bogged down in Bible trivia and miss the point, who gave this thorn to Paul? If the intention of the thorn so that Paul was to not get prideful, we know that Satan didn't do it, right? He wants us to boast in our strengths. He wants us to rely on ourselves. He wants us to trust in our own abilities. The text clearly says that God gave him this thorn in the flesh. God used Satan in the process. This speaks to how control, in control, God is of everything in your life, including the devil himself. God is sovereign over every painful situation. And so if you're walking through a difficult time, that should give you incredible encouragement. You know why? Because the enemy does not have free reign in your life. That yes, God used the messenger of Satan, but listen, it was under the sovereign control of God to allow this in his life, and that's still true for you today. So any ground the enemy has claimed in your life, listen to this, he's done so with your permission. Because the Bible says this, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. And so, why did, he, why did God use this? Why did God use Satan to do this? Because here's what he said very clearly. He said, Paul, I know you've prayed three times for me to take it away, which by the way, nothing wrong with praying for relief, right? But in my wisdom, in my great love for you, my great care for you, the greater good for your life would be for me to leave this thorn in the flesh in place because if I removed it, there's a danger that you would become overcome with sinful pride. And so what that reminds us, there's not a one of us. 
No matter how long we've walked with Jesus, no matter what our resume is, no matter what we've suffered from the Lord, no matter what spiritual experiences we've had, there's not a person in the room, me included, who is not immune to the seductive snare of pride. And God says it's so dangerous that if I have to send you a messenger in the flesh, I will do it if that's what it requires. Now, let me make some application in two very real areas where we can become susceptible to pride, right? Two things here. Number one, this happens when we think we could never fall into sin the way that someone else has fallen into sin. Let me tell you the most dangerous things you'll ever say in your life. I would never do that. Every time I see some high-profile pastor have some kind of moral implosion, I'm reminded that I have the full potential capacity to do the very same thing. It is a dangerous thing to look at someone who's fallen into sin and to think to yourself or to say to others, can you believe they did that? I would never do that. Just as a reminder, turn and tell your neighbor, you're a little sinner. When we understand our fallen condition, our human depravity, you and I are fully capable of every sin that every other person ever has committed. Fully ca- You have the potential to destroy your life and the life of the people around you. Why? Because you are a fallen creature. And you know what pride says? I'd never do that. Dangerous. Dangerous. You know what the wise person says? But by the grace of God, there go I. So pride can creep in that way, that I would never sin the way that someone else sins. Let me tell you another subtle area that pride can creep into our lives. It's in the area of parenting. If we're honest, sometimes we think our great parenting skills can determine the outcome of our children. We can look at other people's kids who are struggling, and whether we think this or whether we say this, uh, what we can get in a prideful place is said, hey, if they would have parented as good as we parented, uh, their kids would have turned out like our kids. So let me just speak into this. Let me remind you. It is the Lord and His mercy that transforms anyone's hearts, not your gifted parenting. I've watched godly, faithful people do everything right and their children grow up to be fools. I've watched people who never darken the door of the church and their children end up in full-time Christian ministry, me. How do you explain all that? The grace of God. The mercy of God in your child's life. The Bible says uh, in the parable of the soils, we're responsible for casting the seed, but we're not responsible for the condition of the soil. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I mean, basically all kids are the same. You know what that tells me? That they either have no kids or one kid. Amen? Ah, kids are kids, you know, all the same. You've got no kids or one kid. And so if you've got a bunch of kids, some of them are wired to be a little more compliant. God forms up our innermost nature, Psalm 139. Some of them, so some are real compliant, always have, always, some of them, not so much. You know what, we can get to the place and we can say, oh, this 
difficulty in parenting, this cycle that I'm in, this, all those things, it is a thorn in the flesh, and God, would you fix it? Would you remove it? Would you cause them to repent? Would you straighten them out? Would you do all those kind of things? And we know God says, says, you know what? This weakness, this suffering, this thorn in the flesh, it's an occasion that in your weakness, you'll find my strength as a parent. It's a gift. So the next time that stubborn kid talks back to you, look at them and say, you, you are, you're a gift. Amen. That it's through this suffering that A, I want to kill you, but B, I can experience God's power because I'm weak in this parenting thing. Right? And so you have to decide, is the suffering, do you look at it as God's affection, whatever it is? Or if you're honest, are you bitter and you look at it as God's infliction? Do you see these hardships as something to make you better? Or have they been an occasion for you to become bitter? Paul said, Lord, take it away three times. What does God say? And I'll hurry, we're almost out of time. Look at verses 9 and 10. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. God says, I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to remove that. I know it's hard, I know it's painful, but if I took it away, you might get destroyed by pride. And so here instead, God says, I'll boast, uh, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that cause and effect, here's why, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul figured something out that we need to believe today. And this is one of the most important things you would ever believe in your life. It would be transformative if you would believe this. So if you're listening, say amen. God is really attracted to weakness. And we spend so much of our lives minimizing it, hiding it, explaining it away. And our culture obsessed with marketing our strengths, what the gospel says, what Paul's modeling, God is attracted to weakness. So the very, I want you to hear this, then we're done. The very thing that you're most embarrassed about, your weaknesses, your inadequacies, are the single most attractive things about you from God's perspective. How life-changing is that? Also means if we're going to be godly people, we should be attracted to weak people. If we're honest, who who do we want to be around? Strong people, accomplished people, successful people, gifted people. God's attracted to weakness, and so we should be attracted to weak, suffering people as well. Why? Because we know it's an occasion for God's power to be displayed in their life like it is in our weaknesses too. Hear me again. God is attracted to your weaknesses. It's the very things that cause Jesus to move towards you. The good news of the gospel is this. Anyone who's humble enough to admit their sinful weaknesses is a candidate to experience his saving power. And I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've never been saved, and the reason you've not been saved is you look at your life and think, God would want nothing to do with me. I've done this, I've done that. I don't have my act together. I've got all these sins. I've got all these inadequacies. Let me just tell you this this morning. You're the exact person Christ died for. 
Those things that you're ashamed of are the very reasons that Jesus is moving towards you this morning. God is attracted to your weaknesses. And so would you just confess, Lord, I am spiritually morally weak. I'm a sinner. Compared to the life of Jesus, I don't measure up. But I do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. His payment for my sins was buried and rose the third day. And so today, in my weak state, with all the faith I can muster up, I receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you pray right now and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because it's in your spiritual weakness that He is made strong as your Savior and Redeemer. For those of you who are saved, let me speak directly to you this morning. Would you thank God right now, hard as it is, would you thank God right now for whatever it is in your life that's causing weakness? Could be something in the inner man, could be something in the outer man, could be affecting both. As hard as it is right now, by faith, would you thank God for your weakness and say, Lord, help me to believe that it's through this weakness that I can experience your divine power in me. And God, help me to live in such a way that you get the glory through this, not me. Because when I'm weak, then you're strong. Others, would you just, would you just pray and acknowledge right now, Lord, the things that I'm most embarrassed about, the things I'm most ashamed about, God, by faith, on the word of God, I declare These things are attractive to you. Not sinful things, but weaknesses. And so would you just pray right now, Lord, help me to believe that to the point that it actually heals me from my insecurities. Would you pray that right now? God, help me to get a hold of this truth to where I live differently this week. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that Jesus not only saves us from a sinful past, that he promises us a home in heaven in the future. But God, in the middle time, in our messiness, Jesus is real and available today, and he's attracted to weakness. And so, Lord, let us lay aside all the marketing of our strengths. It's foolish. Let us lay aside all the insecurities of our weaknesses, because it's there that we experience your divine power. It's there that you get the glory for the progress in our life. Lord, help us to believe the core of our convictions that when we are weak, then we are strong. And may we too, as the people of God, be attracted to weakness as well. People who need us to be conduits of God's mercy in their lives. The only reason we can do this, the only reason we want to do this is because Jesus is at work in us. And so it's in his name we pray because we can. Amen.